Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. If you're curious about the food of Mexico, you won't find a better guide in your exploration than Patty Heenich. Coming up this hour on Seasoned, we talk with the James Beard award-winning author and PBS host about the food of Mexico, her personal culinary journey, and the years she spent writing and researching her latest book, Treasures of the Mexican Table, Classic Recipes, Local Stories. Endlessly curious about the food of her home country, Patty shares her experiences growing up in Mexico City and what she learns as an adult about the dishes of Mexico's distinct regions. Mexican food is not one thing. The cuisine is complex and has a really rich history. Later in the show, we'll shine a light on Chef Carlos Baez. He's become famous for his inspired takes on street food at his restaurants, The Spread and El Segundo in Norwalk. His latest inspiration? Pizza. But first, we're thrilled to explore the wide world that is Mexican cuisine with our first guest. Patty Enich is the host of Patty's Mexican Table on PBS and the PBS primetime docuseries La Frontera. She is resident chef at the Mexican Cultural Institute in Washington, D.C., and a three-time James Beard Award winner. She's the author of three cookbooks, and her most recent is Treasures of the Mexican Table, Classic Recipes, Local Secrets. Patty Heenich, welcome to Seasoned. Thank you, guys. We're both holding up your book. This is fantastic. Oh my gosh, you guys are <laughs> making my day. You're making my day. I have to say, you know, it took me so many years to put this book together and to see it in hands that treasure it and like it is like, it just makes it all worthwhile. So thank you for holding the book. Thank you for having me on. And I'm thrilled to be connecting. We're thrilled that you are joining us on Seasons because this is, we've been talking about this for a while and this is a real treat. And I want to dive right into one of the first things you talk about in your book, which is that you talk to your own children about being Mexican-American and the fact that you see that as being doubly blessed. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit and how that translates into how you are breathing a special kind of life into Mexican cuisine and Americans' understanding of what it is. Absolutely. I love that you're asking me these. And I think that this being a Mexican-American and feeling doubly blessed, but doubly responsible at the same time, has been something that has grown in so many ways as the years have gone by in so many directions. So first of all, I tell my kids that we are doubly blessed because we have these two countries, these two cultures, two languages, two customs, traditions, all of these things that enrich our lives from two different places. So we are blessed with so much. But with those blessings come the responsibility, of course, which is we have to be responsible not to one country, but to two, to one culture, but to two. So you have to do right, not only to the U.S. And, you know, we're so grateful for being here and having the opportunities that we have here and do right by America and show that we are worthy of being here. But we also have to do right by Mexico and do right by Mexico and show that we represent with our head held high and 
You know, for many years when I first moved to the U.S., I felt very uprooted. I felt like, and it still is a fact, you know, when you're an immigrant, you are not from here, you're not from there. For Mexicans and in Mexico, the Mexicans who left are the Mexicans who left. We're not seen as the Mexicans as everybody else. We are seen as the Mexicans who opted to leave for one reason or another. And for America, for the United States, we are the people who came. It's not like my kids who were born here. And so I tell them that they they are in a special kind of limbo because things are very fresh still in their heads. It's, you know, generations after that, these feelings start getting a little bit lost. And I think they shouldn't get lost because when you live in this limbo of a place where you're not from here and you're not from there, you treasure immensely both places. You're incredibly grateful for the place that you land on. You know how hard it's been to get here and to grow roots and to find a home and you know to do right by the place that you come from. And you have very fresh the place that you come from. And you know, it's this ongoing thing that can leave even in a more vibrant way when you experience it through food. Um, but I always tell them that they still have those roots, they still have the languages, they still have that force, and it makes you be nostalgic for Mexico and see Mexico with romanticism, and it makes you see Mexico a little bit with foreign eyes because you're not there all the time. So I always say that when I was in Mexico as a Mexican, I took many things for granted that I do not anymore. But also as a new immigrant, I feel we also don't take things for granted that firstborn or secondborn or thirdborn Americans may take for granted. So you're in this place of deep appreciation, I guess. So we often ask chefs on this program what mealtime looked like growing up because you can almost set that connection up with food. Were you one of those lucky kids who grew up in a kitchen where scratch cooking was every day and regular mealtimes? I have to say yes. <laughs> I was one of those kids. In Mexico, I think in most families, in most places, there's a lot of made from scratch. I remember when I first moved to the U.S. and I started seeing these very trendy farm-to-table restaurants or these farmers markets and in my mind it was like that's what Mexico is all the time you know the markets that you go to have the fresh produce that even in, in the city you find the women and the men who come with their buckets and their baskets and they sell the things by the canful you know mm -hmm. and so there is a lot of made from scratch in Mexico meal times in Mexico growing up in Mexico City were always a feast and a gathering because we loved food so much. And since I was very little, it was the way we communicated. It's the language of my family. And we don't really know how to talk about things, even or when we have problems or issues, we don't know how to solve them. We just eat together. And that kind of fixes it, which I think it can be a little bit of a problem. We're just eating. Um, but there's also a lot of eating many things in moderation. I grew up with dessert every single day, for example. Every day after lunchtime, and it's the Mexican style comida, there was one kind or another of pound cake 
or flan or gelatina or arroz con leche. Like it was just unthinkable to have a meal without dessert. And we grew up middle class. It's not like we were, you know, like these um, very wealthy people that had tons of desserts all the time, brought or bought or made. Or it was, we were very middle class and everybody that I knew had desserts at home and nobody ate a lot of it. It was just one slice or one serving, but you couldn't finish a meal without dessert. And I think that translated as well to when we went out, Chef Tom, it's, um, when you go to a restaurant anywhere in Mexico, you never get the bill before dessert. Right. You're always asked if you want coffee, if you want dessert, and they will never bring the bill without dessert. Whenever I go anywhere else where there's not that culture and I get the bill, I'm like, wait, I wanted something sweet. Do you not have desserts? <laughs> and they usually have desserts. And I always tell them, you guys are doing a disservice to yourselves because we could Absolutely. be eating more, you know? Right. But I think it is that very complete meal, every single meal. Dessert is part of the meal. I could not agree more. I cannot wait to show my wife that Patty Heenish just said dessert is part of the meal because I say the same thing every day. Right. And of every meal, every meal. not just lunch, you know? Even breakfast. Yeah, of course. You need, to, you need a sweet <laughs> bite. Patty, hearing you talk about dessert and how it is a staple of Mexican family meals, I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit and tell us what are some things, because Mexican cuisine and Mes Mexican history goes back thousands of years, and I have to believe that there are so many traditions that are brought over from generation to generation. Can you talk to us a little bit about the staples in the Mexican repertoire. I am obviously thinking about tortillas. And I was also, I'm going to add concha to the <laughs> to the repertoire just because oh. I just, so you were featured in the New York Times um, newsletter. <laughs> so I was like. I know people, people are divided on the concha. <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about those staples. Absolutely. And he, see, even talking about the concha shows you how much desserts and sweets are part of our everyday life. A pan dulce is this category that encompasses sweet rolls, pastries, cookies. And it is a category that swims through mealtimes and days of the week. You can have a pan dulce for breakfast, and that's what you have with your cup of coffee or cold glass of milk. You can have pan dulce for lunch. You, can, you will see it in lunch boxes. You can have a pan dulce for dessert or you can have a pan dulce for a light dinner. So it, the pan dulce can be an accompaniment, a dessert, an extra or its own thing. That's how accommodating we are. You know how accessible and flexible. And there's so many desserts throughout the country. I mean, there's, of course, the ones we inherited and we intermarried with the Spanish. Like, of course, we have 300, 300 years of colonial rule. So you have... All those desserts that um, were bred in the convent kitchen, uh, kitchens where you have the flan, the arroz con leche, you know, the rice pudding. Uh, but then you have many sweets that have to do with compote, like fruit compotes or um, chapulines or um, the gelatinas are huge in Mexico. And I would say that it really is, desserts are really part of not only every day, but any celebration, any festivity, like sweets. We have a very sweet tooth. And, you know, the funny thing is we also like contrasting things. Like the concha that I worked on for the New York Times, I kept saying, 
you know, I can't help it but dive for a concha wherever I see one, even though the chances of you getting a good concha are probably like 20% because they tend to be dry and stale and made in a hurry and ingredients are compromised. But the thing is, when you get a good concha, it is so transcendent. Like Mexicans know, we all know it's worth a shot. It's worth a gamble because when you get a good one, it's like so heavenly. So that's why I, I brought that article saying, you know, you can get a concha, you can get it right. You don't have to look for it in a panaderia or open up a panaderia. But what I was going to say was that we love combining savory and sweet. That's how much we love our sweets. We turn them into sandwiches. So I grew up eating conchas with refried beans slathered in the middle. And I would say I was ready for the backlash because I know Mexicans, that will die for a concha with refried beans. I have that in my lunchbox so many days of the week. And there are Mexicans who can't even get near the thought. We're deeply divided on that. Uh, but that's one of the, of the fun things about the Mexican culture and cuisine too. We are very passionate about what we like. We hate it or we love it. I mean, we have to talk tortillas because it's one of my favorite things. I've taught thousands of people how to make tortillas, especially through the pandemic. Um, what an amazing thing to make. What an amazing start to anything that tastes good and such a flexible thing you can do anything with. My kids will put, I'll make corn tortillas and they'll put Nutella on them and eat them, which is hysterical to me, but they love it. They have the sweet and the salty. <laughs> so many things are just begging to be tacoed, uh, you say in the book. So talk about it. Taco about it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You know, I love this question so much when we when I was talking with my editor, Rox Martin, who worked with me on my three cookbooks, um, I mean, these, these last cookbook, Treasures of the Mexican Table, took me four years to put together. Unbelievable. It was such an incredibly ambitious project. And how you divide the categories of food, right? So it was, you know, the soups, the chicken, the meat, the lamb, the pork, the sides, etc. And then where do you draw the line on which of those dishes are tacos? You know, like a taco de carne asada, like a carne asada taco or al pastor taco. Because so many things can live outside of the taco and you can eat them with rice or inside of the taco, but you can also burrito them. You can also torta them. You can also tostada them. And so I was laughing with the rocks and I was telling her this can be a taco book because you can practically taco anything. <laughs> I mean, Mexicans, we will tackle our shoes, you know, we will tackle <laughs> anything. So, it, but at the same time, we like to say, oh, we are so much more than tacos. You know, we have the magnificent soups and, you know, vegetable-based dishes and greens and salads and moles. And we have so many things that are beautifully simple or very elegantly complex and we're not about tacos but just put a tortilla on any table where there is a mexican and we will taco the finest morning <laughs> like we will taco anything so we we work against ourselves a little there to that point about the tacos and putting a taco into anything and that mexican food really is varied one does not necessarily think of pasta or fideos when they think of mexican food even in my Puerto Rican household, my mother did make sopa de fideos, fideos being those really skinny, short uh, <laughs> pasta yes. that I, I have only in my life ever seen in the soup that my mother makes. But fideos are a part of a part of the Mexican cuisine. They are. And it's so funny that you say that, you know, 
coming from Puerto Rico, you also used to eat sopa de fideo. I was just thinking about tres leches cake. Like I'm sending my monthly newsletter today and it's going to be all about tres leches because you know I have the traditional tres leches, the marbled, the stone fruit tres leches, the almond marzipan tres leches. You can have tres leches in so many ways. And we Mexicans think that tres leches is our thing, right? But so do Ecuadorians. <laughs> So do Venezuelans, so do Colombians. So there are these common denominators that I, of all of these like sister Latin countries that I didn't know about when I moved to the U.S., just tying into the being so blessed when you're an immigrant in another country and how you have to, you're held to a higher standard, first of all, because you represent, you know, the place that you left and then you have to do right and show your proof in the place you land. Um, but also there's many things that you see that you didn't see when you were cooking in that broth. You know, you're taken out of the broth and you can appreciate other things. When I was growing up in Mexico and I started political science, I wanted to be an academic um, before switching careers. And the focus for Mexicans is the U.S. We have this obsession. You know, it's this love-hate thing, Mexico, U.S., Mexico, U.S. If you see, if we see a little bit further than U.S., maybe it's Canada, a little bit of international relations, but we are never taught in history, in the public school system, in education, we don't learn anything south of Mexico. I mean, really, it's so little. It's like this focus with the North, you know? And when I moved to the U.S. and I started Latin American studies and I started meeting people from Venezuela and Colombia and Peru and Puerto Rico and Cuba, and I saw so many things in common. It was like finding a family, you know? Suddenly, you know, wait, you eat tres leches too and you have tamales <laughs> too. And, you... and it's such a fascinating thing when you see all of those common denominators and how they evolve differently in the different countries as time moves on, right? Um, but, you know, a Mexican will fight to say, you know, ceviche is ours, tres leches is ours, arroz con leche is ours, flan is ours, even though, you know, the Spanish nuns brought them. But hey, now we make them is ours. Oh, and by the way, there are Mexicans in Mexico who taco fideo. Um, in the north of Mexico, I'm, I'm headed to Nuevo León where we're filming the next season of Patty's Mexican Table and I have a chef friend there. His name is Adrián Herrera and he's famous for tacoing fideo. And apparently his fideo tacos are really good. So I will have to report back on that. It's like the macaroni pizza idea, right? Yeah. Like, how can you do that? But then you try it and you're like, how can you not do that? A pasta taco. Is that what we're talking about here? Yes. That's incredible. A pasta taco. But, but think about this. Okay. It's a warm corn tortilla. It's soft. It's malleable. It's a little bit naughty. It wants to be sweet. And then it's talked with this fideo that's uh -huh. very saucy, messy, spicy. And you have the contrasting texture of the fideo, which is, you know, whole wheat pasta. And then you have the tortilla, which is corn-based. So you have the contrasting carbs there you know it is carb on carb that sounds delicious i'm in <laughs> i love this <laughs> i know i know you're listening to our conversation with patty heenich 
whose enthusiasm for Mexican cuisine is infectious. It's also making us very hungry. I'm all about a fideo taco right now. Later in the hour, we talk with another chef who cooked in Mexico City as a teenager with family, Norwalk's own Chef Carlos Baez. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, more of our conversation with Patty Heenich. Patty describes how her own appreciation for Mexico and its cuisine deepened as she traveled to regions that she had never explored before for her cooking show. A Mexican that's dedicating her life to sharing Mexicanness, realizing how little I know about Mexico. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We are talking with Patty Heenich. She's the host of Patty's Mexican Table on PBS and the PBS primetime docuseries La Frontera. She's also the author of three cookbooks, and we are so lucky we get to talk to her about her latest, Treasures of the Mexican Table, Classic Recipes, Local Secrets. We left off talking with Patty about the saucy, messy, spicy joy that is eating Fidejo tacos. Those are pasta tacos in the north of Mexico. It's coming up on an episode of Patty's Mexican Table. We'll pick up our conversation with Patty with some advice for home cooks about where to start if you want to cook authentic classic dishes firmly rooted in Mexico. And Patty shares how her PBS show, among other things, inspired her to explore the rich culinary diversity of Mexican cuisine outside of the regions she already knew so well. So for home cooks looking for an authentic Mexican dish, and maybe the pasta taco isn't the way to go to start, what's a dish you'd recommend they try from your book first? Ah, Smoking guacamole. so many. Yeah, no, I know. It's like everybody knows guacamole. Everybody knows a taco. And this was one of the reasons why I wanted to make this book. It's like people already are such fans of birria and carnitas and... Ah. There's so much of Mexican in the American culinary lingo, which is such a beautiful thing. Um, but th- this book is like, okay, here's another 150 Mexican classics that you need to know about. So I think a next big thing, just like carnitas or birria or chicken tinga, is going to be chilorio. Mm. I think chilorio is one of those dishes that's kind of a sloppy joe kind of a thing with its own seasonings. It's shredded meat, usually pork, but you can make it with beef or with chicken. Chilorio is so accommodating. You can make a torta out of it. You can make tacos. You can make burritos. You can eat it on its own with rice. And it has its very peculiar taste, which is rich, but so delicious. So I think people should give chilorio a try. Because if you make a big batch of it, you can repurpose it throughout the week. So you make it, you, you know, you have kids, you make it one day, you eat it with rice, then you put it in the fridge in a couple of days, you make a quesadilla, a sincronizada mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. the tortilla, cheese, chilorio, you serve it with a little guacamole or ripe avocado. In the next few days, you make it with like a baguette, you make a crunchy sandwich or the chilorio. I have a friend that makes chilorio lasagna. lasagna. So. There's so many ways to go. We, we, we love repurposing things. What exactly is chilorio? Okay, chilorio is typically pork that's 
cooked as if they were carnitas. So it's pork that's cooked in its own fat. You know, it can be pork butt, pork shoulder, and it cooks and cooks and cooks until it renders all of its flavor and its fat, and then it browns in its own fat. And you keep on cooking it until it starts falling apart. And then, so that's carnitas, right? With that, you're done with carnitas. But chilorio, you go a step further. Chilorio comes from adding a chile. And you're going to add a couple of chiles. It can be ancho or guajillo, which you just simply rehydrate. And puree, there's versions that have orange juice, which is my favorite. And then you just puree the orange juice with the um, rehydrated chile. Um, you may want to add a tomato. You may want to skip the tomato. And you add some herbs like cumin, oregano, you puree that and you have the meat that's already falling apart, luscious, caramelized in the edges. And then you pour that orange ancho chile sauce and then it just finishes cooking in that. And um, that's chilorio. So it's imagine shredded carnitas that are then cooked in these very seasoned, thick, Mexican style barbecue sauce to put it in a way. So you have that finished thing, which you can then repurpose and use in tacos, in quesadillas, in sandwiches. You can scramble it with an omelet in the morning. You know, there's so many things you can do with it. I'm coming over right now. That sounds amazing. My stomach is growling right now. <laughs> right. Holy moly, that sounds delicious. Okay, so now that we've got to the chilorio, which our listeners are going to be so thankful that you walked us through that. And by listeners, I mean me. Um, <laughs> What are some of the misconceptions or, or understanding of Mexican food in Mexico and Mexican food in the United States? Because mm -hmm. you, you, you touched on something that I've thought about forever, which is there are these fads in food in general, not just Mexican cuisine, but suddenly chicken tinga appeared on every menu. Everything. And then, and then birria. It's like, oh, we have to go to the new birria spot. You know, and now you're saying the next cool thing you know, it, it is going to be these, ¿cómo se llama? Chilorio? Chilorio. Yeah, chilorio. I see. Yeah, chilorio. Yeah, you guys, we have to make it a thing. We have to make it yeah. a thing. But what is the, what is your understanding of the difference? Is there a difference? Is there a big delineation? <laughs> and I, and I love what you're saying of what do I think are the misconceptions, not only in the U.S., but in Mexico, because this is what I realized when I moved to the U.S. and I started cooking Mexican food because I was so homesick and it was my way of growing roots and making a home in a new country was by cooking the foods that had nurtured me growing up and that I could share with people because I really, my English was horrible. I still have a heavy accent, but I couldn't string a sentence then. So it was a way for me to share and communicate. And I think that we Mexicans have to learn so much about ourselves. And I only realized that when I moved to the US. See, when I was growing up in Mexico, the place to go for your birthday or for a celebration was the Spanish restaurant, the French restaurant, the American style cafeteria. We really didn't appreciate our own cuisine. It was like in the 90s and 2000 when like more chefs started saying, hey, our cuisine is pretty extraordinary. It can sit on the table of the mother cuisines of the world. And we started appreciating. So to give you an example, if you were from the Yucatan Peninsula, you didn't have any idea about Northern style food. 
if you were from Mexico and you hadn't gone to Veracruz, you didn't know about la comida caribeña. Um, you didn't know about all the richness and diversity. I think social media has definitely helped, you know, in sharing. But also the chefs and cooks that leave the country and come back or travel to different places that help you appreciate. What helped me appreciate and learn. I mean, I was on this mission to share Mexican food with the U.S. when I started Patty's Mexican Table. And I started going to the different regions of Mexico that I knew because I wanted to share them. As the seasons moved on, I started going to the regions that I had never been before. And I started realizing I had no idea. I had no idea that flour tortillas were not an American thing, but a very deep northern Mexican thing. That we do have burritos and chimichangas and they're extraordinary. That we, you know, it was like a Mexican that's dedicating her life to sharing Mexicanness, realizing how little I know about Mexico. So it was, you know, not only breaking myths and misconceptions here in the U.S. and telling Americans, wait, we're not just about the cheese. We're not just about the chiles. Not everything is spicy. Not everything is laborious. Not that everything is greasy. But wait, I didn't know about this. And Mexico also has this. And I didn't know about this. And Mexico has that. So it has been so eye-opening. And the same with, with American cuisine in the U.S. I had my idea of what the U.S. food was like when I moved to the U.S., which was very misconfounded, you know? I didn't know there was all these different kinds of regional barbecues and Southern cuisine and, and the, the cuisines from the different coasts. And what has been even more eye-opening is the evolution of regional Mexican cuisine north of the border. No longer can you say that Mexican food is only good south of the border. There's all these Mexican communities and cooks that have settled in different parts of the U.S. that come with their regional cuisine techniques and recipes, and then they intermarry with what they find. And it's very different if a Oaxacan cook starts cooking in New York and starts using ingredients from New York. It's very different than if that Oaxacan chef or cook moves to Arizona, Very right? So you have these Calmex, Tex-Mex, New York mix, Northern mix. And that I find some people find very intimidating and like, whoa, what's happening? We're being taken over by Mexican cuisine or no Mexican food should only stay in Mexico. I find it fascinating, you know, and so delicious. Lots of home cooks have gotten to know you from the same way they've got to know Julia Child and Jacques Pepin and Lydia Bastianich on public television. Do you have a favorite standout memory from traveling across Mexico for any of your shows? Oh, I I have enjoyed every single piece of it. I mean, I think in the beginning, it was going back to Mexico City and going to the places that I loved and sharing, you know, my family, my home, the places that I remember. But I have to say that what excites me the most right now is going to places that I've never been to before. My relationship with my audience has changed in that I'm not taking them to something that I know, but they're coming along with me to explore something from my home country that I didn't know. Yeah. And I know that's not happened. I know you asked what has been my favorite, but I think that my favorite is what I'm going to do in a month, you know, that I still don't know. That gives me the most excitement. Uh, we can't wait to see more of these journeys. And I wonder, I know we're, we're, we're ending this, we're on the down end, we're in the home stretch. What do you make for your family? 
in a week. I always wonder what chefs make in their homes. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, we eat a lot of rice and beans. I mean, I, I would say every day there's rice and beans in this house in one way or another. Red beans, black beans. Black beans. Okay. So I mostly make black beans. I cook them with a little bit of onion and epazote. And then we eat that in every possible way. And I make a very big batch. And then in a few days, I'll season those with some chipotle or make them charros with some bacon or chorizo. And then if I didn't use all of them, I'll puree them with roast tomatoes and garlic and onion and make a like a black bean tomato soup. It's just, I'm obsessed with beans. I love beans. Um, and then, uh, I mean, we do... Rice and beans a lot. We do eat a marble pound cake a lot. My kids love that. I make a lot of chocolate salami and it's always in the freezer. I don't know if you've tried that. Did you just say chocolate salami? Yeah, it's chocolate salami. Pero mujer, ¿qué es chocolate salami? <laughs> salami de chocolate. So Pastino I de chocolate. That, uh, yeah, salami de chocolate. <laughs> it's a messy thing. I used to eat that growing up. It's it has no salami. It's just in the shape of salami. So you combine melted bittersweet chocolate with a lot of butter. And then you mix that with egg yolks while it's hot. So it becomes kind of fudgy. And then you mix that con galletas marias, like broken galletas maria crackers or graham crackers. You can add pecans or other things or pumpkin seeds. And then you roll that into a log. And then you roll that with confectioner sugar, you freeze it and well, with parchment paper as if it was salami, and then you slice it as if it was a frozen cookie, and it's so delicious. And if there's not some of that in the freezer, I get complaints. <laughs> I have friends who will come and open the freezer and just grab a salami and go. It's like the inside of a truffle. The chocolate salami that is devoid of any salami, and I need that recipe. Uh -huh. I'm making it in my house. It tonight. is so good. I love it because it's very childlike. It's fun. Uh, but kids and grown-ups enjoy it just as much. It makes, I know we're not in Christmas season, but it makes for a great holiday gift as well. I'm sorry, my dog is barking. Um, now that I have two kids in college, every time they come visit, like I'll pack chocolate salami in their suitcases. They take that as a treat because they can. I also make chicken milanesa for them. Oh, you were asking me what I eat. We eat a lot of chicken milanesa. People don't know that that's uh -huh. a thing in Mexico. I know it's a thing in all of the Latin countries. It's like chicken schnitzel. Um, I have so many of those in my freezer as well because it's just so easy to just throw it in, in the hot oil. I love um, chicken <laughs> milanesa with chipotle mashed potatoes. I think I would eat that every single day. I'm a comfort food person. Mm-hmm. I think your dog's saying there's no more chocolate salami in the freezer. <laughs> I know. I know. Patty Enich, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Oh, no, thank you, guys. It was such a fun conversation. Next time we should do it in person. Yes. I would love that. And just because we play a little game, are you a Leo or an Aries? How do you know? I'm an Aries. <laughs> Marisol, this is getting creepy now. I just want you to know that. Were you guessing? Were you I'm guessing? obsessed with astrology. Yes, I was guessing. I'm obsessed with astrology. It serves me really well. I love I love that.
good. And I love that you had Leo and Aries together. I've never been guessed as a Leo. I'm a typical Aries. <laughs> I mean, I just, I'm a typical Aries. Yeah. That was typical Aries and just the most fun person to talk with about Mexican food and cooking, Patty Heenich. Her most recent book is Treasures of the Mexican Table, Classic Recipes, Local Secrets. You didn't think we'd get you all excited about Mexican cuisine and not share a few recipes from Patty's book, did you? Well, you'll find recipes for fideo seco a los tres chiles, that's Mexican-style pasta with tomato and three chili sauce, guacamole ahumada, smoky guacamole, and enchiladas de pollo con tres quesos, three cheese chicken enchiladas, all on our website. Find them at ctpublic.org slash recipes. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, Chef Carlos Baez is a chef we want you to know about. He cut his teeth making tacos at his father's taqueria in Mexico City, and now he makes inspired interpretations of street food from around the globe in Norwalk. You feel like you're standing up in a, on a truck, let's say in El Salvador or Colombia or Thailand. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Talking with Patty Heenich about her roots in Mexico City reminded us of another chef we're proud to call friend, right here in the state. Carlos Baez is the executive chef and partner at The Spread in South Norwalk. His restaurant, El Segundo, also in South Norwalk, and now in New Haven, too, is his global street food concept. We talked with Carlos last year about how his father's influence in Mexico and later being mentored by a Japanese sushi master shaped his approach to cooking. I started working when I was 14 in my, at my dad's taqueria in Mexico City. And from there, you know, I never left the, uh, the cuisine. When you were at those early days in Mexico City, I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing that with us. What did your dad do? Was it, did he own the taqueria? Was it assumed that you were going to work with him because you were his son? Or was it something you wanted to do? Oh, I was probably six years old when I remember that he was working at this place. And uh, he started with one and... Uh, then he opened another place, and the third place, he got three taquerias in Mexico City. And when I was old enough, I started to work with him. First of all, I was just doing it because so I could spend time with him. Because he was a hard worker. He was working all the time. When I was uh, 14, he finally made the decision to, to pay me some, <laughs> some money. And then, uh, you know, I like it. And everything that he did me, it's, uh, I use it on these days. It's, it's amazing. He was an amazing teacher, good mentor. and. Uh, he doesn't do it anymore, but uh, I, I mean, I still run into his recipes. The fact that he brought you to work with him, I love that because as a chef, as a father, like I get it. I mean, it's tough to be able to have that time to spend with your children and be around your family. So why not bring him to work? Let's get some free labor for a little while and then occasionally give him a buck or two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I got two daughters. One is 15 and the other one is eight. And like I try to, to teach them the most I can, like. If we, we're going to be home and we're cooking something together, let's say just we're going to make the pasta. Um, you know, I, I make them work. I make, you know, to do the pasta and, and to grate the cheese and everything. It's, it's a good family time and it's amazing how you can pass that to someone else. Carlos, when you first started working alongside your dad, can you tell us what was the first thing you learned how to do? And what are the first things that you made? So the first thing that I learned how to do, it was to cook 
suadero meat. Suadero is a, it's a typical dish, it's a typical taco in Mexico City. That's the first thing that I learned how to do. So I start with one and he teach me the next one. He, he was one of those guys that like, he wouldn't let you to move to the next step until you actually got the first one right. If I got to be cooking suadero for six months, I was doing that for six months and, and he didn't let me do anything else. Now, is that beef or is it chicken? It's beef. In the States, in the, in the United States, we use brisket to do that, to make the suadero. In Mexico, we use a different cut. It's similar to brisket. I mean, you got to give us a couple of tips that, you, that your dad taught you here. I and mean, you got to tell us how you make it. So, so suadero, it's a brisket. Let's say beef brisket. And it's confit. You use um, all the different herbs, thyme, rosemary. We put some orange peel, garlic. Lots of aromatics. I love it. That's fantastic. What have you brought over from those early days in your dad's taqueria? What have you brought over to El Segundo or even the spread? So we opened the spread uh, nine years ago. Wow. And when my partners and I, we thought about to do El Segundo, the first item it was on the menu, it was tacos al pastor. Why? Because that's one of my favorite things to eat. And it's so hard to find a good taco al pastor. So we make those and we start to do it at the, um, like a gyro, like the spit. And we were lucky enough that we couldn't keep up. And it was everything that was handmade. I wasn't going to buy pre-made or anything like that. So it was, it was so hard. And I hire more people. I teach them what to do. That's the number one item. Sell that segundo. And I'm so proud. And every time I told my dad, like, who's making it? And he wants, he wants me to introduce him to the people who are actually going to make it. My dad is, he's so proud. And I'm so proud to do his recipe. And I, and I told this uh, to Chef Plum before. I'm a lucky guy. I'm a, honestly, because he shared one of the good secrets with me. You know, I, I just want to point out, and for anybody who hasn't been there, we keep talking about the different types of food at El Segundo. El Segundo is, and, and Chef, correct me if I'm saying this wrong, it's street food from across the world. Small plates, food you can eat with your hands from all across the world. that You could like almost walk around and eat. Is that a good description? Yeah. The, the same way you eat it on, on the street, you eat it at Segundo. We don't have uh, plates. Everything is be, it's going to be on a paper boat. We also don't use utensils. We, get, we use uh, chopsticks or pretty much everything you can eat with your hand. Yeah, you feel like you're standing up on a, on a truck, uh, let's say in El Salvador or Colombia or Thailand. Well, Chef, with all these different things that are on the menu at El Segundo, I mean, that's kind of where I wanted to go with this was how many different types of cuisines you had to get into to start researching, to study, to learn. I mean, so many chefs, they focus on one or two types of cuisine. I mean, with all these different types of food, you must constantly just have your nose in a book or watching videos or studying to learn these different types of foods. I started working um, in the United States when I was 16, working at a seafood restaurant for over nine years. I was lucky enough that uh, I find this place in uh, Rye, New York, La Panettiere, which it was actually my school. It was a French restaurant. And that's when I actually, I started thinking and food a different, completely different way. I went back to Mexico and I was um, a sushi chef in Mexico City and also in uh, New York. After that, I mean, I work in an Italian restaurant, but if I got a chance to create a dish, I always try to infuse the agent in Mexico. That's my goal. That's like, for me, it's like they got like the best flavors ever. And um, that's what I like to infuse. I mean, El Segundo represents uh, 22 countries. I haven't been in 22 countries. 
but <laughs> but how you say it, it was it was uh, definitely a challenge and, and a lot of cooking at home a lot of cooking for my partners and let them taste the, all the food and reading a lot honestly it was items that i wouldn't even know they they were there and that's that's the best part of it because it's, it's a learning progress carlos what was your first experience with asian food and what did you like about it so much so my first experience it was uh how to make a sushi. I learned from a guy, his name is Matthew Idesako. So the way that he teach, it's a gift. And the way that he, that he teach me how to take care of the fish, and that was the most important thing. You not rush to do anything when you're making sushi. You got to make sure everything is on point. That's the number one. Everything is like the, the way that he cuts, the way that he makes things, it's all about technique and his hands and, and the sharp knife and how to cut the fish yeah he actually showed me how to how to fillet my fresh salmon i mean everything that i learned from him it was it put my mind on a different spot and when i went to mexico and i worked in a sushi restaurant so i, I started doing um in mexico they call a tepanjaki which it's hibachi here so I, I did a hibachi for like six months like the hibachi guy behind the grill like hibachi guy like you would throw the shrimp and catch it in a little hat and light, <laughs> yeah. light the onion thing on fire yeah yeah <laughs> I did that for six months and it's it's amazing how you actually, when you're cooking for somebody face to face and you make them feel special and they taste your food, everybody loves it and make them happy. It's the, the, the thing. It's, I love it. I will do that again anytime. You briefly mentioned French food and we know that you have a love of Asian food. And it seems that you have this love of food and you can make food from a lot of different cultures. Is there something in common that threads all of those things together? The French cuisine, my boss recommended me to this French restaurant. And the chef, he probably saw different, something different than me. And he teach me how to make all the, the sauces. And, and I was like, why do they put the chicken stock to reduce for three days to get a core of it? In the beginning, I didn't understand it. But when I start eating the family meals that he was putting together, it was Started making sense. mind changing. It was, yeah, it was, it was different. And he used to make, it was family meal, but it was always a bottle of wine, fresh baguette and duck confit or always with the sauce. And we eat a lot of duck, a lot of rabbit those days. And it was amazing. Yeah. And just so you guys know, family meal that chef's talking about is when a lot of great restaurants will have a big meeting before the shift where everyone will sit down and eat. The restaurant will feed everybody who's going to work for the night, kind of talk about things that are going to happen. And apparently at this restaurant that Chef Carlos was at, they would all have wine as well. This sounds like a great restaurant. I was just going to say, I would go back to being a waitress <laughs> if my family meal was like that. I was a terrible waitress, though. <laughs> so you so you have the French food, and that's where you, you learned, it sounds like, that there was a lot of intricacies, you know chicken stock that took three days, yet it made you think about food in a different way. Did that give you a different appreciation for food and different types of food? What did that experience do to carry over so that you expanded your palate and expanded your ability to cook from different cultures? When people come from all over the world to the States and they sit down at Segundo, they think it's a Mexican restaurant. When they open it, uh, the menu, and they see they, they can find things from Canada, from Colombia, from Chile, from Argentina, from Portugal, Italy, France, Vietnam, Philippines. And they taste the food and they're like, who is this guy? Who makes that many different dishes? 
and he executed the right way. And I take food really seriously. And that makes me feel like no one else because make people happy. And when they come in from a different country and it's something they, they miss and they probably they want to eat, let's say, a few tacos, but they also want to do the fried noodles and summer roll and banh mi and a glass noodles, tongue jam. And they love everything. That's the thing. <laughs> like I love that. Well, Chef, we certainly do appreciate your time today jumping in and telling us a little bit of your story and sharing some of your food history. And thank you so much. Gracias, Carlos. Thank you, guys. You just heard our conversation with Chef Carlos Baez. Since we spoke with him last year, he has added yet another cuisine specialty to his repertoire. When he's not at the spread or El Segundo, you'll find Chef slinging some gorgeous-looking pizzas at Magic 5 Pie Company in Norwalk. It's still pretty new, but the place is Happen. Don't forget, we're sharing three recipes from Patty Hinich's latest cookbook, a Mexican pasta, smoky guacamole, and chicken enchiladas. You'll find them right now on ctpublic.org slash recipes. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Season is produced by Robin Doyen Aiken, Katie Tolarski, Emily Cherish, and Catrice Claudio. To keep up with the latest on Seasons, follow at ctpublic on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. We're on Twitter at WNPR. Or keep it simple and just follow the hashtag SeasonedCT on all platforms. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can catch past episodes of Seasoned on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and never miss our conversations with people making great food and drink in our state and beyond. See you next week. 